Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Students. Somehow we kind of blew it on the intro. So, with no more ado, I've got uh, three students back for the future of psychiatry. One more episode in what I think will be a long-running series based on Joshua Hansen's suggestion. And let's do some introductions. Quinn, how about if you start? I'm Quinn Gray, third-year medical student at Rocky Vista, and I'll do psychiatry. Quinn, um, your favorite job ever was filling snow cones. It was. And your second favorite job has been being my uh, student that runs and gets Diet Cokes. Is that correct? That is a correct statement, yes. <laughs> it's not true. <laughs> All right, Joshua. Uh, my name is Joshua Hansen. I've been here a few times. Uh, Third-year medical student, interested in psychiatry. And uh, just happy to be along for the ride on this one, on this, uh, this discussion. It looks like it'll be fun. Doug? Doug Worthlin, also third-year medical student, also interested in psychiatry. Uh, anything else you'd like to know? Uh, your favorite job ever was what? Well, I said it was um, BYU sprinkler technician. That was actually a lie. Um, my favorite job was actually being a landscaper. Really? Yeah. We'll come back to that on maybe one of our sound checks. At some point, we're going to publish sound checks and have those <laughs> out there for people to listen oh, to. Oh, gosh. Cool. Yeah, it should be fun. So I want to I introduce um, the discussion for today, and uh, I think it would help to listen to the first podcast in this series to have a better background. That's one that was led by Joshua. It came about based on an article uh, regarding specialization versus generalization of psychiatrists and... and um, what what the future of psychiatry truly holds. And so um, we started thinking about different kinds of things that might affect psychiatry in the future, what, what the future holds. And I, I think we uh, talked about, well, we did talk about AI. We, we generated a folder of uh, uh, five or six subfolders speaking about things that might be revolutionary. And one of the things I came across looking for gene therapy was something called induced pluripotent stem cells. Mm. And I think induced pluripotent stem cells has the ability to tie together some things that have been very challenging for me over the last number of decades. I want to paint a picture just a little bit. So I, I started off with this idea that at some point we might be able to have some sort of gene therapy for um, the illnesses in schizophrenia, but I'm also aware as illnesses and mental illness and, and psychiatry. But I'm also aware that um, if, if you look at the genome-wide association studies, we've really had a tough time being able to say schizophrenia is caused by this, right? We, we have a number of genes that have been associated with schizophrenia in specific families. There are a couple of genes that may have been found associated with more than one family, but it's not the same mutation, I think. Um, uh, disrupted in schizophrenia 1 or DISC1 is one of those genes that now has a couple of families that's been associated with it. One article said that maybe there are 305, and this was 2017, different genes that might have implications for schizophrenia. Um, and, and so we have this idea, well, we're, we're going to cure schizophrenia like maybe we can sickle cell anemia with gene therapy. Um, I'm saying schizophrenia because that's what I think about, right? That's my world, even though this could be said more broadly about mental health. Um, but, but schizophrenia is not one illness. It looks like yeah. maybe it's 305 illnesses, or maybe it's 
305 genes that have three or four different ways that those genes can be affected. Hard to say still. Yeah, it's, you know, for somebody that's not super versed into psychological or psychiatric pathology, um, different, these big uh, named psychiatric illnesses like schizophrenia, depression, those kind of things can honestly be thought about like how we think about hypertension. There's not one route or one cause and we're starting to understand all the various routes of hypertension and each various route usually has different modes of treatment. We are starting to understand that there's different types of depression, there's different types of anxiety, different types of schizophrenia and hopefully uh, with this series of the future of psychiatry we're, we're thinking about keying in on specific treatments. That's an interesting thought because I think this conversation has revolved around like figuring it all out, but in actuality, it probably will work out like hypertension where you have primary and secondary hypertension. Primary, we don't really know what's causing it, you just have hypertension. But there's these other secondary types of hypertension where we do know what's happening. And imagine a world where there was primary schizophrenia and secondary schizophrenia. And oh, that'd be cool. How do you say 305th? Right, variant three. Yeah, it would be nice. Depending on the the gene. Yeah, I I think, uh, to me, the the other way, this has been an ongoing conversation. I have a a brother who is very focused on data in a a way that's great, right? And the, the challenge I've had is, hey, I'm aware that I'm treating depression, but I'm not treating one condition. I'm treating a lot of conditions, and we have this um, population-based treatments that clearly don't help every person, right? It doesn't mean the data is bad. It means that we're throwing darts at a dartboard in a way that's going to be helpful maybe with depression in terms of remission, maybe 25, 30% of the time. So your NT is somewhere around, what, seven, eight, if I remember right. Mm -hmm. If you're looking for just recovery, that number, I think no, four or five. And if, if you're looking at remission or re- reduction in symptomology, those NNTs get a little bit better. In my mind, this has always been an issue of us trying to treat a lot of things that are not the same illness. And my example of this that I came across in preparation for this podcast was the difference between um, a virus and bacteria, which may have a lot of overlapping symptoms. Um, and if you treat a large enough population with an antibiotic, that has both viral and bacterial symptoms, you will get a signal. Mm-hmm. But you're clearly not treating the portion of the population that has a virus. Yeah. And so I think, I think this podcast looking at IPSC, to me, this is finally, in, in my mind, the tool that's going to help us identify the differences of the, the different illnesses that we now group under fever, so to speak, right? Yeah under a symptom or a, 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 like schizophrenia, right? It's a name, but it's not all of the illnesses. And so I think this is the direction we're gonna go. And what I want to do is I, I wanna tackle this, um, first of all, by describing what uh, this process of IPSC is, the induced pluripotent stem cells, how those uh, come about. After that, I'd like to tackle three different areas and maybe more depending on how the conversation evolves. But I want to tackle, uh, uh, first of all, disease modality, using IPSC to understand the disease process better, which is kind of where my lead-in came from. 
But there's a couple of other areas where iPSC might be valuable, and those include cellular response to medications and something called regenerative medication. And then if you guys have any other t kind of major headers, we'll tackle those. Uh, yeah, Joshua. Yeah, and I think that that's a great way to you know go ahead with the podcast, but to focus in on what we're talking about right beforehand, we're not saying that uh, any of the treatments that we're currently using to treat the fevers are wrong. It's just, it's frustrating because... They're Some, incomplete. They're incomplete, They right? might not be targeting every... Clearly, yeah. they're not targeting everybody that has the illness. Yeah. They're, they're not completely effective. We don't want to be the uh, psychiatric researchers that are trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, all of, all of the theories we have are junk, and we should throw out the treatments that we have right now. We just want to be a little bit more, you know, targeted. Right. We want to improve our ability to treat more, more perfect, so to yeah. speak, or more better. And, and I think there's some implications here for uh, personal or precision medicine that, that apply. And we talked about those a little bit in the last podcast. Yeah. Who, does anybody want to talk about how um, induced pluripotent stem cells are made? Does anybody want to tackle that? I can go into it a little bit. Quinn, go ahead. Do you mind if I kind of go into the history? <clears throat> no, that I think that, awesome that would be really cool. That would help me out a lot. <laughs> All right. So in the 1950s, a scientist named John Gurdon, he used a technique called somatic cell nuclear transfer in which he introduced mature cells nucleus into an enucleated frog cell egg. And so this egg cell reprogrammed the mature cell nucleus into a pluripotent state. So this, this frog egg now was pluripotent, it was an embryonic cell, now had the capacity to become any type of cell. So this, this technique became the foundation for cloning and stem cell research. So that was in the 1950s. I didn't um, know it was back that far. Yeah. I was that, kind of surprised too. That's interesting because that kind of showed that factors inside the cell, not just the nucleus, are contributing to the state of the cell. Right. Right, stuff yeah, in the cytoplasm, something. So in 2006, then you have Shinya Yamanaka, who is a Japanese researcher um, who essentially discovered iPSC. So using a viral vector, he inserted genes, uh, some cocktail, I don't remember exactly what it is, but yeah, genes. I have the name for it. It's called Yamanaka factors. Wonderful. <laughs> okay, simple enough, yeah. Well, interestingly, some of them, like CMIC is one of them, and I, I should know it, but it's related to cancer. I think it is uh, lymphoma. That, so it's the stuff that we're somewhat familiar with, but now we're using it to change cells. So interesting. Yeah. So using a viral vector, he took these genes and he inserted them into just human somatic cells, as I understand, already mature cells. And these genes... Um, cause proteins to be made in the cytoplasm of these mature cells, these proteins would enter the nucleus and then reprogram the nucleus to become pluripotent stem cells. So now, what was once a mature cell is now pluripotent, and these scientists can say, okay, we want this pluripotent cell now to be a neuron, or we want it to be a disease neuron, so that we can study this disease process, not only the process necessarily, but also I think there's an implication for treatment as well. So I, I want to ask a couple of questions. And, and Doug, yesterday you said, so you're talking about demethylation. I was like, I don't know. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, that must have been a little bit confusing. <laughs> and, and 
the more I read about this, it appears that's the answer. So just, just to add a piece, I want to see if I understand something, and I'll bounce this off you guys and correct me if I'm wrong. Methylation can happen through a lifetime. It can be associated with how, it, it is associated with how specific genes are turned on. Does it have a role in transcription of those genes as well? Not just turned on and transcribed, but how they are um, processed. Uh, I, I imagine it does. I don't know. Uh, I don't know that for a fact, but if it influences what is getting um, replicated, then I imagine it's also influencing what gets transcribed. Yeah. So this is called the epigenome. Yeah. Right. So what we're taught in medical school is methylation mutes, right? So if you're methylated, you're turned off. If you're unmethylated, you're turned back on. Oh, I've got it backwards. Okay. Yeah. All right. So so you can now demethylate everything mm -hmm. with turn these trans on. turn everything on, which makes this uh, stem cell pluripotent, and that process is called reprogramming. And then, as Quinn was talking about, you can now figure out how to, there, there are processes that are in place where you can now turn this pluripotent stem cell that's been an induced pluripotent stem cell, you can now program that into a specific cell line that you might see as a maybe a um, research target. Research target, maybe a hippocampal neuron. Mm, yeah. You might be able to have it, and I'm terrible at these different layers, right? Isn't there like seven layers that you're supposed to learn in medical school? Six, and yeah. Six. You guys are all looking off into the air. Doug's like, yeah, I know those. <laughs> I do not know them. I highly doubt they'll be on step two. It's okay and if they are, I'll just... Know them, Doug. It's okay. I don't know them. And if they're on step two, I'm just going to take the L on that, so... So, um, so, so the idea though is that you can actually induce these neurons into a specific, t or these sorry, these pluripotent stem cells into a specific neuron. Now, the way that this becomes interesting is that um, in, in the past we looked we've looked at genome-wide association studies to try and find putative um, putative causes, genetic causes of illness. Again, I, I mentioned before, this has not quite worked out the way we want. But what this allows us to do is to actually look at a specific family with schizophrenia, take or, or a specific person, I should say, take um, epithelial cells from a specific person, turn them into pluripotent stem cells, and then there's some really interesting things that can happen. You can now look at the pluripotent cell, turn it into a programmed neuron, and look at the effects and, and depending on which neuron you turn that into. But even in addition to that, you can, with uh, Cas CRISPR, you can actually repair the gene mm -hmm. and compare the differences in the cells. Or you can take an, a cell that is, quote, and I'm putting up my fingers here for those of you watching, quote, a normal cell mm -hmm. with, with a wild type is probably the better way of saying that, wild type. Uh, for example, uh, disrupted in schizophrenia one, and you can add the um, you you can using Cas CRISPR, you can introduce that either uh, deletion or that frame shift, whatever the the yeah. specific um, problem you're looking at might be, and then look at the actual downstream effects. So you can actually see what's happening with those neurons. Um, so so kind of moving into 
disease modeling, one of the articles we had that we looked at was this case with uh, use of IPS looking at a family with a frame shift, a disc one frame shift. And I think this is a Scottish family where this was originally identified. And they were able to show that this frame shift in one of the genes led to aggregation. It eliminated all the disc one protein and that that affected uh, vesicular release. Now, I don't know that we're past that in in that study we didn't I didn't look further than this but that was kind of um, sort of this aha moment for me that that as opposed to saying well disc one isn't the cause of schizophrenia right instead we're saying something very different which is at least in this family it looks like disc one is a factor in schizophrenia whether mm -hmm. it's the cause or not I, I I don't know enough to say and it looks like maybe the pathological mechanism is that vesicular release is affected on some level, and this is affecting neurotransmission, right? I, I kind of wonder, and this is something, Doug, you and I talked about before, how that might correspond to, all right, we have vesic vesicular disruption. Do we see in something like tensor imaging decreased activity in various pathways that are associated with neurons that uh, require disc one to be effective? And, and so this was kind of the opening for me to, to start to say, maybe we will have better understanding, better, better pathophysiological understanding of the disease process in schizophrenia. And I, I think at some point we might be able to see something that is not just um, synaptic, which is what I think a, a number of the studies we looked at, at, at are talking about, but maybe something that looks um, all the way from the synapse upstream and downstream, something that affects the maybe the body of the nerve, something that affects development, maybe something that is turned on or off. But in this case, it was interesting that one bad frame shift gene can actually disrupt the other gene, and understanding that was very fascinating to me. Yeah, and we haven't even gotten to the glial cells, too. Well, let's get to the glial cells, then. Well, I, I was just saying, I'm just oh. mentioning, I don't know that much about it, but it could be that they play a role in schizophrenia, so not just the neurons, but the right. environment that they're in. He's saying that, like, we've only looked at one type of neuronal cell, and so much information has already been given to us, and yet there's so yeah. many other cells in the nervous system. Yeah, I think there's uh, some thought about glial cells being affected. There's something, there's ideas about pathways being disrupted, and I, I, what I don't know is if those pathways would be permanently disrupted in some patients with schizophrenia, and if some patients with schizophrenia who had DISC-1, I mean, I'm imagining that somehow these very brilliant scientists that have figured this much out, and people like them, would be able to say, hey, we can do gene therapy for patients that have one uh, DISC-1 um, non-wild type allele that we can repair, and then suddenly you have better functioning because of improved functioning of synaptic vesicles. Now in 20 years if somebody's listening to this podcast, they'll be like <laughs> yeah. That would be amazing in 20 years if someone was listening to this podcast. Well, I'll be amazed. I'll be amazed if somebody's listening to it next week. But, um, but I think it's absolutely fascinating. This is to me this is something that gives me hope that we can figure out new and better treatments for schizophrenia. Did you guys come across other disease modeling kinds of articles or papers that you want to add to this? Um, yeah, there's, with the stem cell research, there's just so many different ways that you could use it to better understand disease because you can essentially make a mini brain right now. So they're 
they've been able to use these stem cells and model them in 3D. And so it gets us closer to a model that's more like what real life is, as opposed to just being on a 2D slide. Um, so they've been looking at, like we've been mentioning, the connectivity. We mentioned it earlier. They've been looking at that in these stem cells using the isogen, like using a normal uh, mini brain versus a mutated mini brain, comparing the um, connectivity, and I thought that was quite interesting. So, so these chips. Now, something that happens that's kind of fun with Doug and I is I'll say something and he'll go, "Huh." And he'll pull out his computer and then uh, Google it. Joshua does the same thing. Quinn watches them do that, and then he already knows the answer right there. Yeah. He always, always <laughs> knows the answer. So and, humble. And then Doug says something, and I go, huh? And so I'm immediately Googling this, and you can buy um, chips. I think they're called chips, right? Um, you can buy these uh, IPSC um, biological chips to be able to run studies on them. Oh, well, I just Googled chips, and it came up with something very different than that. I, I, did, did you Google IPSC chips? You no, I, I, was just, I just Googled chips, and it came up with like Fritos. <laughs> but, but that's a great example of, yeah. of the kind of conversations we have and, and how much fun we've had with that. Yeah. So, so I think you can actually buy these uh, chunks of tissue called chips mm. and, and then do research on the chunks of tissue, not necessarily just the cells themselves. Yeah, so I, I didn't know about chips the extent of my knowledge is just the, the 3D, but yeah, it looks like you can buy them. That's super interesting. <laughs> like I said, huh, let me Google that to see that, prove that to myself. <laughs> I like that. Uh, if, I, think, I think there could be a lot of other examples of understanding disease. I think the understanding of the 3D modeling, you talked about that already, talked about the chips. Um, I think the next thing we want to talk about, so, so I think disease modeling is going to be maybe the first thing that IPSC is going to bring us. The second thing that it might bring us, or maybe a close tie, is the cellular response to medications. So talk to, who, who looked at cellular response to medications with, with IPSC? I, I looked at that a little bit. Um, so, so same idea. You have a mini brain, you have one of these chips, and if you sprinkle on medication, you can... <laughs> sprinkle on medication. Um, <laughs> Do you, you use can, a salt shaker for that? <laughs> a special salt shaker, yeah. Special salt shaker, okay, got it. So you can guess or speculate based on the response of the mini brain how a patient was act would respond to a, a treatment. And in psychiatry, I think this is really could be really valuable because it can take a really long time to see how a patient would respond to a treatment. If you switch them off a medication, try another medication and that one doesn't work and you want to go back to the original medication, sometimes that doesn't work as well. So it's pretty high stakes as far as the, the medications going. So having a model that you can test it on before treating a patient is super valuable. Um, some examples that I um, found that were quite interesting. This was just from a review, so I don't know all of the details on these. Um, but they, so so this is a patient with a, a syndrome called Timothy syndrome, and I don't know the details on this, but it's a, um, it's a defect in the calcium channels. And they built one of these models and then they just started sprinkling on medications and they found that a calcium channel blocker made it so this mini brain started to look more like a normal mini brain would 
And so it opens up the possibility, well, maybe we use calcium channel blockers for this, um, for this medication. And so when I think about psychiatry, we don't use calcium channel blockers in schizophrenia. Not saying that it would work, but it's the opportunity to test out a much wider variety of medications for patients. And I can definitely see this becoming really effective in clinical practice because when I was in my family med rotation, we already had genetic screening that kind of gave you a hint at what type of SSRIs and anxiety medications would be most effective. And when we talked to patients about it, usually it was two or three medications in to trying to find the right one. And uh, we had to level expectations that this would might give us a good direction, but it's not you know, clear. So the fact that this is something to this effect of let's get extrapolated data onto what type of drug might be most effective for you personally is already something that clinicians are having conversations about. So a more refined tool is, I think, would be adopted readily. I, yeah, I had two thoughts about this. One was along the lines that you're talking about those, uh, those, um, the, the gene side or yeah, gene there's a or? there's a couple of them. They started emerging. I want to say 15, 20 years ago, and the challenge with those is I'm I'm not sure I've seen great data that says it comes out it changes outcomes in treatment yet, mm-hmm. and and maybe it's there. Maybe I haven't looked very hard for it. Um, part of the reason why is because I think when I when I look through the results on those, what they will tell me is largely if somebody is a rapid metabolizer or not, right? So it gives me more than anything that CYP450 enzyme profile. It does have a couple of, um, a couple of genetic looks, so to speak, that talk about long and short arm, I think, of the serotonin receptor. There are a few other things that show up on there. But generally speaking, I haven't felt like those tests really tell me anything more than what my blood level might be in somebody that's fully adherent with medication, right? Yeah, so pharmacogenomics, a blunt tool. It feels like it, yeah. At best in psychiatry, and that's what I've heard as well, even though I don't have nearly as much experience as Dr. Roundy. I don't have a lot of experience using it, but but my feeling was if I have some response, I go up on the dose, I don't treat the, I don't treat the blood level necessarily, I treat the outcome, the yeah. symptoms. Yeah. And, and so um, side effects and signal become generally more important to me and I'm not sure how, I, I think probably if you get uh, testing early, like before treatment of the first episode of either depression, of, of depression, you might have a better kind of pathway, but in some ways the the data from, uh, what is it, Steps, not Steps BD, what's a TMAP, the TMAP algorithm out of Texas, right? It, it might have just as good a way of going about treating somebody with, with as good an outcome without yeah. using the, the uh, pharmacogenetics. So I, I don't know the answer to those things yet. Um, but the other thing I thought about was how, um, what is, uh, Google, is it Google? that has the supercomputer that they're now able to DeepMind? Yeah, you mentioned that. So I think DeepMind is now able to predict confirmation of proteins based on the genetic, or mm-hmm. based on the, the DNA sequence, right? And so what, what I'm wondering is if, uh, even though we're talking about how a medication might work, um, by sprinkling with our magic salt shaker, a very specialized <laughs> magic salt shaker onto these chips, um, I also wonder if AI has the ability to do something similar or how they might be different or if those models 
Um, yeah. Those those models are being introduced. That was a conversation topic for the last uh, podcast that kind of got cut. I mean, yeah. it was we had so much to talk about, but yeah, not only can we start to model different proteins, but then we can start to model and do predictive kind of approaches for the chemical compound of the drug, right? And so starting to mix those of saying, hey, if this protein looks like this, then here are 13 different chemical structures or minor modifications that we can make to already existing antipsychotics to be able to... Yeah, and I think they've even, to this point, with uh, with DeepMind, DeepMind, is that the name of the Google supercomputer? That's what you said. I'll, I only know what you told us the other day about it. So. Let's, let's Google that and check it. Joshua's got his fingers active there. Nice. So, so I think the other thing that they've looked at with some of the supercomputing, and again, this is I don't think this is machine learning. I think this is supercomputing. Um, I think they've actually found molecules that can be repurposed to treat other conditions. Right. Sometimes we find those serendipitously, but it looks like they're finding a handful of those that might be effective in other, in other conditions yeah. that that already exist. I imagine that the um, biological and technological advances will work synergistically. As the mm -hmm. biological gets better, it's a better model for the, the uh, computer model, and they'll just work together. It'll be really exciting to see what yeah. happens. Because I don't think, even with genes, every single person's genomic structure is different. And so while we might get good enough in the future with our genetic technologies to be able to sequence and do things on an individual level, I think the first step would to be get enough genomic data, enough biological data, and then use AIs to look for patterns that we're not seeing, to be able to extrapolate and say, we have an X percentage chance that this person's drug tolerance or type of schizophrenia, type of depression, is going to look similar to data points A through F. And I, I bet we're already there because you can get your genome sequenced mm. for much cheaper than it was. Information right and I mean, they're doing a genome study at IHC in, in uh, St. George. Mm. And all of the data, I think, is being processed by a group in Iceland or something like that. So I think what you're describing is probably happening yeah. all over the country. It's to happen. Yeah. Big, big genomics, big data, big genomics. Yeah. I, I sometimes joke with my wife. She tries to talk me into getting my... Uh, she, she worked for one of the companies in Utah County that does genealogy work and is associated with collecting genomic data. I keep telling her that I'm afraid to do that because I don't want my parents to be disappointed that I'm not really their child. Um, but in all seriousness, I have a little bit of heartburn about throwing my genomic data out to the wind, which I know there are protections, but I, I get a little bit worried about that. Uh, it sounds like that Gattaca movie. Did you ever see that sci-fi I do. Does that have Keanu Reeves in it? I forget who the uh, no. actors are, but yeah, it's this dystopian sci-fi film of everybody is... ID'd by their uh, genes, like everybody checking into work gets their thumb pricked and it takes a couple of skin cells, so no more driver's license and yeah, you're judged by your genome. Dystopian. I don't know. Uh, I should probably move on um, before I get too far. I want to add one other comment with this. The, the only thing that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, and maybe you can sort this out for me, um, if you have a pluripotent stem cell, you have, or a pluripotent, yeah, an induced pluripotent stem cell, 
you've fundamentally changed that cell so that it wouldn't necessarily respond the same way that a cell that is methylated by lifetime experiences, right, our environment affects us, might respond to a medication. I think I'm under the impression that as long as you um, program the cell, you're going to get a fairly accurate picture, even though it might not be perfect. Is that the idea? Or am I like imagining stuff that's not real? Yeah, I think that it's not a perfect model still. A mini brain isn't a real brain, and it's not a real brain that's gone through all of the experiences that a real person with schizophrenia or any other mental illness has experienced. But it's a much better model than what we have, and just think about how much we've learned from just petri dishes and, and cells, and so it's gonna push us that much farther until there's the next tech, uh, biological the next advancement where we can actually make a full brain and, and do all this stuff. So. Because I think it would be, what would be really great, and I can't imagine how this would happen, but I'm not very imaginative, would be to take uh, skin, cells, skin cells and somehow make them be representative of the cells that are actually in the brain without having to reprogram them mm -hmm. and then program them, right? Because in a sense, you've demethylated everything and that might not be the exact way that the well, cells the, are in the brain when, when, when yeah. they're programmed, right? Well, so the, the skin cells are gonna be methylated differently than the brain cells, right? right. And that's, right, that's, that's, that's a big barrier, right? Yeah. yeah. But, but do, am I making any sense about the idea that if you demethylate everything and then turn it into that specific uh, cortical neuron, then you don't have the same cortical neuron that exists in the brain of the person. Oh yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. That's how okay. I see it. I don't know okay. everything about this, but yeah. um, so so I can't imagine that it's a perfect model for cellular response, but it's probably a good model for cellular I think response. The and way, I think that was how you were responding to that. Yeah, and I think the way to think about it is it'll give us more information on what the disease looks like at the beginning stages. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and so maybe we can focus on that more and do more preventative medicine. Or it might also tell us uh, pre-morbidly what the condition looks like. Yeah. Then we get into the biomarkers thing, right? Yeah. What if there was a biomarker for schizophrenia that could tell you if you're likely to have schizophrenia in 10 years and it was just a blood test? That would be amazing. Just anecdotally, one of the psychiatric news things that you let me take from your office a couple of days ago, there's a couple of articles very excited about this method of schizophrenia research of let's try to find as much information as we can about the early stages of the disease before the first incidence of psychosis because then maybe we can make more of a dent right prevention prevention um quinn i think there's an overlap of a topic here that might be worth um, talking about just very briefly I think you read some information about the stress diathesis model and how that might fit into some of the uh, the IPSC modeling. Did, did I understand that correctly earlier? Am I way off base on this? I don't think you're off base, no. Okay. Um, <laughs> Lucky. And it, I didn't necessarily read anything about stress diathesis, just mainly trying to recall what I what I'd heard and learned in undergrad a little bit and then tried to tie it to our conversation about how we can use IPSC to to understand these diseases. Um, so the stress diathesis model, as I understand it, is you know we have our genetic components that may contribute to mental illness and we also have our environmental component that contributes to mental illness. And um, 
So let's say you have a group of people, let's say you have 10 people who together experience some sort of traumatic event and maybe a few of them go on to develop, I don't know, PTSD or some sort of anxious disorder and then the other, I don't know, seven people in that group do not go, to, go on to develop um, symptoms. So I, I think the question is why? And the stress diathesis model postulates that our genes um, maybe predispose us or give us some level of vulnerability to developing those symptoms when exposed to an event. So we can kind of think of it like uh, maybe I have a glass, uh, my stress diathesis glass is uh, three quarters of the way full. So if, but maybe Josh's is only one quarter of the way full. So if we experience the same traumatic event, maybe that's enough to fill up my glass and I start experiencing symptoms, but Josh is not quite there. And, and I think one of the articles, and I think you might have looked at this a little bit, IPSC was being looked at in one of the articles I shared with you, Doug, before we got started, where they were looking at the stress diathesis model and methylation as being a, a factor, DNA methylation as being a factor in the stress diathesis model leading to schizophrenia. And so if you could potentially demethylate something, maybe that would be helpful too. Yeah, very interesting. One thought I had about it is um, with this model and maybe how genes could help us understand it better is, is it that people have different sized glasses of stress, like threshold? Yeah. Is it that, like you're saying, one person's glass is just more full than the other? And is it is does it fill up over a lifetime and we can't dump it out? Or is it someone like, had a stressful day and then on top of that had a stressful moment and so that's what led to it and so like can you is it a transient thing and maybe understanding you know the gene modeling can help us understand that better too I think one of the ways they're looking at that is the HPA um, axis and how that might affect methylation and so forth that was I think part of the crux of the article we looked at hmm. um, Regenerative medicine, I think this is probably the shorter of the three topics and further out. So let's, let's suppose that I have a uh, stroke and lose uh, right frontal area and mm -hmm. somebody would maybe say, ah, I notice his judgment is more impaired than usual. Joshua's rolling his eyes. No, I, th I think the... he's saying it would be hard to notice that your judgment is more impaired. <laughs> uh, so... So can we now use these induced pluripotent stem cells? Is there research looking at maybe replacing a chunk of tissue? Yeah, um, so the, the article that I looked at was a cardiology-based article. And so they were saying after an MI, you have heart tissue that doesn't work anymore. It's never gonna work. So I think we're probably closer to non-neurological uh, uses for regener regenerative medicine, but that's the extent, honestly, that I know about it. That's so, as far as we yeah. you found anything. Yeah, I don't know the details on how they would actually do that, or if they're or if they're doing it somewhere. So. I'd, I'd, I was um, deployed once with a uh, physician. I want to say from uh, Galveston area, who was working on a bead lattice for trying to figure out how to get neurons to regrow in a pathway that would be appropriate after a stroke. And I thought, dude, you're, 
miles ahead of anything. And I've always wondered where that research went and what role different uh, growth factors on these uh, gels would, would lead to and how that might lead to reconstruction of tissues. And it's always been something in the back of my mind that there are people that want to regrow tissues and how fascinating that is. Yeah. yeah. And I, I'm fascinated by this aspect of the research of regrowth because not only with dead neuronal tissue with like a stroke, but what about one of the hardest loops that we've, we're struggling to break in psychiatry and behavioral health about addiction? Can we regrow like addiction loop patterns? Can we reset things? Can we um, resensitize tissue in a way that we can't currently? Is it Does it have to be dead tissue that we replace or can we regrow the reward center of a brain and kind of give somebody a reset take give away people a bigger prefrontal cortex maybe I don't you know, know it's interesting because I, like I don't know that it's a bigger prefrontal cortex there's some data out there that talks about salience right the ability to um, I, I think the way this is used in substance use is um, that people who have been using substances that have that um, reuse cycle right that yeah. uh, craving cycle um, that the ability to make judgments about how that's affecting their life, the importance of those things, the salience, is disrupted, and that it's disrupted for about a year after um, cessation of use. And so, so the question is, it, it might not be a, a, a bigger frontal cortex right in decision making. It might actually be some some uh, methylation, some change in the way DNA is being processed. Yeah. Well. That, that affects that and maybe you know, this might give us some of those ideas. Yeah, so that makes me think about um, the kind of leading us into our next topic. Is it, is it okay if we move on? Please. In the uh, Studying the environmental aspect of disease. So sprinkle on some meth onto a little mini brain and see how it affects methylation, connectivity, all these markers that we've been looking at. And you know, maybe we can understand that better. This this year-long uh, decrease in salience or insight. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that before. Of of actually inducing some of the things that we think might be causing changes in the brain. I mean, it, it makes some sort of sense that you would have a lot of different areas that you might look at that could be affected in these uh, chips of specific. Uh, neuronal areas of the brain, right? Mm -hmm. Very, very fascinating. And this statement I'm about to make might just be because I'm biased towards psychiatry, but I feel like it's a unique issue that psychiatry has is that there's a lot of factors surrounding pathology. If somebody is using a substance, usually there's social factors, there's stressors, and there's this, the substance itself. So when they inevitably have symptoms, is it the structure the situation that they were taking the drugs in that made more of the difference is it the substance that made more of a difference and now if we're at, able to use these studies we can directly say how much did this substance really play a role in the brain changes and we can get down and eliminate all of these other variables that seem to swirl around psychiatric pathology <laughs> or add more complexity to or, the picture because yeah, that maybe. seems to be the way it always happens yeah other very interesting other topics with these uh, pluripotent stem cells that we want to tackle? Um, I think 
I was thinking the other day, this might be an ethics discussion, and if it is, maybe we just clip it short. Um, Since there's difficult answers to difficult ethical yeah, questions. Difficult ethics. To, so we're talking about the regrowing and potentially helping people regrow or regenerate brain. What if we do, what if we start treating uh, ment like reduced mental capacity, low IQ type things, and then what's to say that we don't allow everybody to just boost their IQ by 20, 30 points or 50 points and where does it stop? Do we do we get uh, a point in time where nobody has to feel depression? And That'd be nobody, nice. Yeah, nobody. I think the people that are depressed would probably say that would be nice. Yeah. Most people with schizophrenia would I think have mixed thoughts. Some people would very much mix, miss the voices but I guess that's where autonomy and choice comes in, right? Yeah. Do we open up the research to let everybody be super geniuses? Yeah, I think uh, my thought on this, and I mentioned to it, this to you guys earlier, is that it's the issue of the store-bought tomatoes versus the um, the garden tomatoes, right? The store-bought tastes totally different and has kind of a generic taste where the garden tomatoes... The heirlooms. They have a really you know, pow I think powerful, strong flavor, and it's because the grocery tomatoes have gone through uh, probably like a hundred years of... of um, get to the store and stay fresh. Yeah, get to the store, stay fresh, size, Green, just optimizing green. size and uh, not going bad, essentially, and so you're taking out these genes, and the genes do multiple things, right? The genes for depression and schizophrenia may do multiple things in our society that we value. It's hard to know that. I was going to quote the great philosopher Syndrome. <laughs> What's that? From the Incredibles? From the Incredibles, who, oh. who once oh, said, oh, yeah. who once said uh, when everybody is special, nobody is special. Did I get that right? If everybody's a super, then no one is. Yeah, it's interesting. And yet, I think personal happiness, uh, how people just pursue that is, is meaningful. Um, autonomy and choice right? that's kind of where I land I think whether that's right or not I don't know very Joshua's libertarian of you I, just, <laughs> I, I love these topics but I don't think that the ethics is a good it's hard to have a podcast about it because yeah, people don't see me throwing things at you when I disagree yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, I think we've gone through the areas that we found that we came across that caught our attention, undoubtedly, there's more. I mean, there there is a lot of research. My experience has been that I saw IPSC and I had no idea what I was reading about. This this uh, project really helped me have a better sense of some of the things I'm reading and understanding now. I liked this this topic a great deal. One of the things, though, that the this topic is about is how does this project us to the future. And, and I'm going to, how does this affect how psychiatrists might work in the future? And I'm going to throw this out there. I think the most immediate change is that there will be some psychiatrists who open up what will probably be the equivalent of a concierge practice, where they um, understand the tools available, know how to order those, and people that have a lot of money walk into those concierge clinics and walk out with maybe a better treatment and much more understanding of the illness they have. And I think that's probably where 
where this will change. In, in my mind, this is sort of like, um, this would be a fairly disruptive innovation, potentially. Um, I think ketamine clinics are an example of changes in psychiatry over the recent years, right, where people are walking in for a ketamine treatment where SSRIs have been insufficient. In this case, somebody walks in and instead of one, one size fits all, well, this failed, so obviously you need ketamine, it will be something along the lines of, hey, well, no wonder the SSRIs failed. Your brain, based on the best information we have, is a brain that's going to respond much better to Wellbutrin, or it's going to respond much better to a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, or it's going to respond much better to RTMS, or it's going to respond much better to whatever the case may be. So, so I think initially this will be precision, a precision, what, what, what would be called precision or personal medicine, but it will be concierge. That's my thinking. And it will be maybe a couple of specialized clinics in a city. I don't know that there's enough money to drive this kind of medicine for most people. And I don't know that initially the outcomes would be dramatically better, but I think they have the potential to be much better. That's kind of how I project what IPSC might do for the future of psychiatry. Yeah, and I just think having a better understanding of the diseases in general, there's an infinite number of ways that could take the medicine, right? So it's hard to know exactly, but just just understand if, if it doesn't ever turn into clinical, if there's no clinical re- relevance for IPSC, but we understand schizophrenia better, that'd just be super valuable. Right. I, 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 I think so. I don't know that IPSC, I, I think if IPSC affects direct care, on the psychiatrist level, it will be that we're using the, the magic salt shaker on a chip from a specific person to see what might help the person have more functional neurons. I think to get there, though, we have to know which neurons in, in this entire big brain that we have full of neurons um, are affected and how we can actually reprogram, I guess we know how to re people know how to reprogram, not me. <laughs> um, and then I, I don't know that there's the ability to program into every cell set that might be affected and, and identify the right gene right off the bat. So I think I think there's a lot of work that would have to be done before this can happen. I think it will be probably after I'm out of psychiatry that this is is, is a tool that would be used for, for personal or precision genomics. And I think you're right, much sooner than that we will have maybe genetic tests where we say this person has um, DISC-1, uh, change from the wild type, I guess mutation would be the way of saying that, uh, a DISC-1 mutation, and in patients with DISC-1 mutation, this medication is shown to be most effective, right? And so you might be able to look at some genetic testing for specific uh, mutations, and based on IPSC, a much earlier change might be, now we go to this medication. And I think that would fall in the genetic testing that's already being done right? mm-hmm. with the uh, pharmacogenomics. So, yeah, I, you're right. <laughs> you are right as well, though. I can see that happening, concierge. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. What is it, quoting another great philosopher, who was, who was the one that said he was, I was right, he was more right? Um, it was the superhero that uh, finally left and the bad guy became a good guy. Mm, I have no idea, man. It's a Disney yeah. show. I'll have to look, should I look it up? Yeah. <laughs> I, was, he, he, I was right, he was more right. All right, uh, Joshua, while he's looking that up, uh, where do you see this taking psychiatry? So I, I could see this with the, with the concierge service. I could see it with finally getting kind of just a, like a lab test where you draw some blood 
and then you send it in. Uh, I could also see it affecting kind of the back room of psychiatry with better drug development. Uh, if we can grow, if we can harvest enough cells to be able to be representative of the patient populations just in general, maybe we could start to make specialized antipsychotics, SSRIs, SNRIs, that start to reduce some of the side effect profile. I mean, every time we talk about putting somebody on Clozaril, it's always that very effective medication, but at a price. And maybe we could develop a Clozaril without that price of agranulocytosis and constant blood draws and stuff That would like be that. nice. Or an olanzapine without metabolic issues or SSRIs without sexual dysfunction. So maybe I could see that uh, IPSC technology helping with drug development. So, so if you actually can demonstrate where the molecules having benefit and side effects by... So, so I think you're even saying that you might be able to not just find how our magic salt shaker could find um, epigenetic things like um, substance use, right? Mm -hmm. uh, smoking marijuana. You might also be able to look at these cells and have a better sense of where the side effects come from and then maybe tailor a molecule using yeah. deep mind, so to speak, yeah. that's able to tickle one receptor without tickling the other. Yeah. And, we, and we saw that a little bit with clozapine being adjusted to make olanzapine, right? It was, it was a slight adjustment and, and that was brilliant, but what if we could do that at scale very, very scalpel, razor sharp, precise. And and eliminate, and because I, I think most people would say olanzapine is not quite clozapine yet. No. There are a few no. people that I think argue against that, but I think generally people would say that. So so that's interesting. You're, you're making the case that this would allow us better drug development, and I can see how that might happen. Yeah. yeah. Quinn. Yeah, I think my first thought is, um, I don't know. <laughs> Second thought is, I, I do think that it'll make strides for precision medicine. And my third thought is I could I could see it being used like, I don't know, maybe a teenager comes into a clinic and his parents both suffer from severe mental illness and he wants to know his risk. Um, or maybe you have a couple who suffer from severe mental illness and they're doing IVF and they want to know what's the risk that you know, one of these embryos develops severe mental illness, and then they find out the risk, and then maybe then the question is, what do we want to do about it? Can do we do anything about it at this stage? Or select which embryo they want implanted based on risk factors for mental illness. Yeah. yeah. Back to your, I was right, he was more right. Yeah. Google says it's from the American crime drama Get Rich or Die Tryin', featuring 50 Cent. So, I, I think there's a there's a Disney movie with it <laughs> where there's uh, there's a bad guy. They go to school together. He goes to school with the superhero. The superhero is always right. He's always wrong. And, and I think the oh I knew the, the idea with, with Will Ferrell Blue, um, the and it's like the bad guy becomes a good guy, right? Yeah, because and, and the idea is that societal norms and expectations can create who we are and changing those expectations and norms can bring out the best in us, I think is, is it Minimind? No. Megamind. 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 Yes, Megamind. that's a good movie. Yeah, he, I think there was the quote in Megamind of he was, I was right, he was more right, something along those lines. Okay. Um, I think I think it's still uh, Get Richard I Tryin', but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I clearly don't see enough movies, a few Disney movies here and there. Uh, guys, I, I think we've covered the area. My take home is 
I now have a better ability to read psychiatric psychiatric literature looking at um, the pathophysiology of schizophrenia. It, this helped me understand some pieces I couldn't before, particularly how genome-wide association studies were kind of picking up clues, but they weren't really helping us understand the illness better. This seems to be the next step in, in what might be genome-wide association study benefit. So I, I, that's my take-home here. I, I really enjoyed this topic. Um, let's see. My take-home is this was fun to talk about. We'll see where it goes. <laughs> <laughs> my takeaway is I'm, I'm excited about this just because it allows us to get one step closer to having more consistent therapy. I mean, anything that can help alleviate some of this these symptoms that you see in psychiatry. I mean, anybody who spends any time with uh, patients suffering with schizophrenia at the level that they need to be in an inpatient facility would uh, would crave any type of treatment that would that would be more effective. Alleviate that burden. Yeah, I like that too. Quinn. Yeah, it feels like this could very well be the future of medicine, the future of psychiatry. And yeah, we can speculate what's going to happen, but of course we're unsure. Um, I think we're going to find out. <laughs> I think what you're saying is, guys, you can speculate all you want. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I want to add one other take-home comment, and I think this could be a potential um, uh, podcast in itself. There's there's a uh, book that came out, I want to say in the 1950s, 60s. Uh, I've got it right over there on my shelf. It's called The Fusion of Innovation. And the premise was um, you could, at that time, buy, uh, I want to say it was Monsanto, but it might have been one of the other... Uh, big chem agencies where you could buy um, genetically modified, uh, I want to say it was corn, and you could, but it might have been wheat, and you can spray that genetically modified corn with some pesticide, I'm sorry, herbicide and pesticide that wouldn't affect the corn, and you would have these dramatic changes in crop yields. If I understand the history right, again, I, somebody who understands this better than I do, put a note on the podcast so that we can all see uh, a better way of seeing this. Um, and apparently there was a person that would go around and he would see this and, and wanted to understand why a farmer on one side of the road had just these thick corn yields and a farmer on the other side of the road still had kind of this less effective, less yield, right? Why, why wouldn't you pay a little bit more money and make a lot more money from that? And so the idea is how do we adopt changes? Um, how, do we, how, how does innovation affect us? When do we take that innovation on? And, and one of the things that I think is incredibly difficult is changing the practice you saw somebody before you do, right? And, and as I look at the implications of IPSC, it makes me wonder, do I do enough genetic uh, pharmacogenomic testing? Am I missing the boat because it's not what I saw done? Am I thinking too much about the potential cost of that when not thinking about the cost of somebody staying in a, in a state hospital and how that might help somebody? And so, so maybe one of the things we can talk about is we're, we're talking about some of these changes and how they may affect psychiatry, how they may affect the practice of psychiatry. But I think another thing that's worth talking about is how will you as a psychiatrist be ready to embrace changes and maybe completely modify your practice so that you can give best care to somebody that you're providing treatment for. Something uh, clearly for another day, but uh, something that you guys are kind of looking at in interest and maybe we'll pick up another time. Uh, gentlemen, on that note, team, team out. out.